0: Father, as we open our Bibles, we open our hearts. We pray that you would help us to grow in our knowledge of you. And as we yield our lives to your Holy Spirit, help us to know you better so that we might love you more. Help us to love you more so that we might obey your word. And help us to obey your word so that we would truly abide in Christ. And as we abide in Christ, may our lives bear lasting fruit for your glory. Free us from any distractions. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so before we dive into John 18, let me just set the stage for our study. John has spent the last five chapters, chapters 13 to 17, in the upper room with his disciples. Everything in those chapters occurred in one place, in one room. And I think Warren Weersby does a good job kind of explaining and summarizing Jesus's main message to his disciples after Judas had left that room. So Jesus shares with them the secret of life. If someone were to ask you, what is the secret of life? What would you say? Well, Jesus prepared his disciples for that because he said, that the secret to life is bearing fruit. Jesus said in John fifteen eight, my father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples. He also went on and said in, in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. But that leads us to another question. If bearing fruit is the secret to life, well, what is the secret to bearing fruit? Well, Wearsby points out that Jesus told his disciples, the secret to bearing fruit is abiding. Abiding in Christ means allowing his word to fill our minds, direct our wills, and transform our affections. Jesus said, abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. Well, if the secret to life is bearing fruit and the secret to bearing fruit is abiding, well, what's the secret to abiding? Jesus told his disciples, he says, the secret to abiding is obeying, obedience. Jesus said, if you keep my commands, you will abide in my love. As I have kept my father's commands and abide in his love. So you can see this one question, what is the secret of life? Turns into five questions. So what is the secret to obeying? The secret to obeying is loving. Love is what leads us to obedience. Jesus said in John 14, and this is all from these chapters before. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love him and manifest myself to him. And then 1 John 5.3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. So finally, what is the secret to loving? The secret to loving, Wiersbe suggests, is knowing. Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Think about the Great Commission for a minute. What is the Great Commission? It's to do what? Make disciples. Make disciples. Well, how do you make disciples? You make disciples by helping others to know God, to love him, to obey him, to abide in him, and bear fruit for his glory. The lasting spiritual fruit is the lives that have been forever changed by the gospel, So that's the context of our study this morning. So we see that the secret of life is really five secrets. By knowing God, we come to love him. And by loving him, we will choose to obey him. And by obeying him, we will abide in him. And by abiding in him, we will bear lasting fruit. That brings us to chapter 18. Jesus and the remaining disciples leave the upper room. And then all the dominoes begin to fall. And we're going to look at that this morning. So read along with me, John chapter 18, the first 11 verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew that place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples." So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing there with him. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of all those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon. Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? Wow. Big changes happen when we get to chapter 18. They go from being in one room, having this really important conversation, And then dominoes start to fall. So when Jesus crossed the the brook Kidron, the water of that brook would have been red due to the blood of the thousands of lambs that were sacrificed that day. And I wonder if Jesus saw that blood and thought of his own innocent blood that would soon be shed for our sins. And it says that Jesus went to a garden. And we know that that was the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus went right where Judas was expecting him to go because Jesus wanted to be found by Judas. He knew this was all part of God's plan. Judas came not only with a band of soldiers, we're not sure how many, but we know that it could have been as many as hundreds of troops. But he also came with some temple security force. Did you notice that? It wasn't just Roman soldiers. There was also a group of Jewish soldiers. Judas misunderstood both the nature of Jesus and the power of Jesus. Think about what we have here for a second. Sinless man is in an appointed garden and was about to do battle with Satan's representative. Does that sound familiar? Well, in a couple of weeks, we're going to begin looking at Genesis and we're going to see... That the first time that this happened, the human race fell in the Garden of Eden, fell into sin. But this time, God is going to take it back. And God is going to make sure that this sinless man wins the battle. Because like my friend Jim mentioned last week, there is no plan B. So Jesus makes it clear to us that he was a volunteer, not a victim. Did you notice that he wasn't in the back shrinking he he came forward. He he made it very clear in these verses that he was a volunteer not a victim. He was going to voluntarily lay down his life once and for all for the sins of the world. Look at verses 4 and 5. Then Jesus knew all that was going to happen to them came forward. Again, he came forward not as a victim but as a volunteer. And he said, "Who do you seek?" And they answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Did you read what Jesus said next? Actually, he didn't say, I am he. The Greek says, he said, I am. He said, I am. Jesus clearly identified himself as God in the flesh. And those who heard those two words felt the power of God knock them to the ground. Did you notice that? That must have been a fascinating thing to watch. I mean, that whole crowd that was there fell to the ground when he said, I am because of the power of those words, which I'll I'll talk more about in a second. But did you notice Simon Peter's courage? I heard a guy say recently that in heaven, there's going to be a long line out of Simon Peter's uh, house of pastors apologizing because of how many times they threw Peter under the bus for his lack of courage. But if you put yourself in Peter's position, he was very courageous. I mean, he brought a sword with him. He was a good fisherman, but a really poor swordsman. Thank God. Right. And it was a good thing. He was a poor swordsman because if he wasn't, there might've been four crosses on that next day because that would be a capital offense. When Jesus said, I am, to that crowd, it harkens back to what God told Moses to say to the Israelites when they asked him, who who sent you? God told Moses to tell the Israelites, I am has sent me, Moses, to you. So very, very significant. Some people will tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, right here, he claimed to be God. And actually, they felt the power of that. So we go on in verses 12 to 18. We learn that Jesus doesn't resist being arrested, but goes voluntarily. And he faces the first of what will turn into six unfair trials. And meanwhile, while Peter does his best to stay near Jesus, again, an act of courage, he ends up denying Jesus when John speaks to a servant girl who's guarding the door to the courtyard to let Peter in. This is the first of, of what will be three denials of Peter. So I'm not going to spend much time here, but I just wanted you to sh- share this with you. Jesus ends up experiencing six trials, and they're, they're kind of up on the screen. The first three trials were kind of religious trials in front of the chief priests, But then he moves on to to three civil trials in front of Rome, in front of Pilate. And if you like John, and we've talked about this in the last couple of weeks, there's a lot of references to the number seven. You can make it seven trials because we can all include that there's, there's an ongoing trial, cosmic or universal trial that continues to this day as every individual on earth must decide what to do with Jesus. Could I have a volunteer read this next section? John chapter 18. Okay, Big Dan. John chapter 18, verses 19 to 27.
2: Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always thought in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. So why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there warming himself. So they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him, Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow.
0: So in these verses, look at verse 21. He says, Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard what I I said to them. In saying this, Jesus wasn't being uncooperative. He was only asserting his legal right. There was to be no formal charge against an accused until witnesses had been heard and been found truthful. That's why Jesus said that. And then we also learn in these verses of Peter's second and third denials. And now we get to see Jesus is going to be taken before Pilate. When I when I first saw this picture, if you look at Pilate doesn't it kind of look like he's checking his text or playing a game on his cell phone? It's it's foreshadowing in some ways.
2: So Big Dan, can you continue reading verses 28 to 32? Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute him. They objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die.
0: And then, Mike, can you bring the mic up to Doug Allen? Because I have a question for Doug. And so, Doug, instead of you asking me a question, I'm asking you a question. Yes, look, sir. At, look at verse 28. At verse 28, it says, They led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early in the morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. This is like an apparent contradiction because didn't Jesus eat the Passover? So, a lot of people look at this verse and they say, Well, look, the Bible's full of contradictions. I mean, Jesus already ate the Passover with his disciples, and the Jews are saying they haven't even eaten it yet. How do you explain that, Doug? What are, you, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Any
3: thoughts? I, that I've never thought of. I mean, that, that's uh, interesting because, yeah, the night before Christ had celebrated the Passover. So I don't know where that where, was Christ celebrating early or were they celebrating late? I'm going to say Christ was probably celebrating early.
0: Right. Okay. Well, let me, let me help you, fill you in. And I didn't know either. So uh, okay. just to be fair. So, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just in fun. I'm, I'm putting you on the spot like this. So you enjoy um, it. <laughs> we, we learned, we learned the answer to this according to Josephus because Josephus tells us that the Jews that were in Galilee, a different part of Israel, the Northern part began their day from sunrise to sunrise But the Jews in Jerusalem, the more Orthodox Jews, reckoned time from sunset to sunset, which means the Galileans could eat the Passover one night before the Judeans. And actually, it works out well because there's so many people in Jerusalem and so many sacrifices that have to be made on the temple that it helps with the volume problem. Because Josephus recorded that in one Passover, over 250,000 lambs were slaughtered at the temple. And so you couldn't do all that in one day. So you you needed more than one day. So that's the answer to the question. But people love to pick these kind of things and say, oh, look, the Bible's full of all kinds of contradictions. Okay, Doug has a comment.
3: In the film, Fiddler on the Roof. In there is a song that that is sunrise, sunset, or sunset sunrise, which makes sense. That goes along with what you're saying. So I'm saying even the Jews now will start at sunset, and when sunset starts, that's when the Sabbath or the or at that time Passover would be until the next sunset.
1: That's good. Greg? So, yes. The Passover fits in beautifully because it is it is not on the Sabbath. But as you remember, when Joseph and Nicodemus go to claim the body, it's three in the afternoon and they're going to try and get him buried before sunset because the Passover starts in a couple of hours.
0: Doesn't that also mean that when Jesus was dying on the cross as the Lamb of God, that lambs were being slaughtered? And on the temple at that same time. So while the lambs were being slain, the lamb of God was being slain once for all for the sins. Now look at verse 28. It says, this is is really interesting about the Jews, the Jewish leaders, I should say. It says, they themselves did not want to go to the praetorium lest they should be defiled. Here you see something kind of interesting. The Jewish leaders refused to break a relatively small command regarding the ceremonial defilement, but then they broke a much greater command in rejecting God's Messiah and condemning an innocent man to death. Consider the sad irony of this they take elaborate precautions to avoid ritual contamination in order to eat the Passover. At the very same time, they are busy manipulating the judicial system to secure the death of the one who alone is the true Passover, Norman.
3: Speaking of the law, it was against the Jewish law to trial a man on the first day he's arrested and also at night. And they broke those laws also.
0: Yep. Good good comments. Okay, let's continue on. Big Dan, can you keep reading? Chapter 18, verses 33 to 40, please.
2: Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own ideal, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him, but it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising.
0: This is a fascinating conversation between Pilate and Jesus. And we're going to see that Pilate, is he really doesn't want to deal with Jesus. And he definitely doesn't want to be the one who decides to put him to death. So Pilate's question, what is truth? We could spend the whole hour and 15 minutes on that. What is truth? Because it's been asked by philosophers for ages and ages. But let's remember what Jesus said about truth. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I... Am the truth, and then in John seventeen seventeen, he says that your word is truth, and in First John five six states the Spirit is truth. The Spirit and the Word point us to Christ, who is the truth. Okay, let's keep keep going. Maybe uh, Ray, could you read the next section,
4: chapter nineteen, verses one to eleven. Then pilate took Jesus and had him flogged the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head then they clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him and again and saying hail king of the jews and they struck him in the face once more pilate came out and said to the jews look i am bringing him out Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. So in this
0: section, we see that it seems that G- the that, that pilot thought that scourging Jesus, which by the way, was illegal, <laughs> would move the hearts of the Jews enough that they would want to just see him released but their hearts continue to be hard and they were determined to destroy Jesus. But why did Christ not answer Pilate's question in verse nine? For one thing, Pilate had not obeyed the truth that he had already received. And so God does not reveal more truth until we obey the truth. That's already given. And then we see Pilate's boast in verse 10, which is really a sentence of his own condemnation. If he did have the authority to release Christ and knew that Christ was innocent, then Pilate should have set him free. And Jesus rebukes Pilate and reminds him that all authority comes from God. So what becomes clear is that Pilate doesn't want to sentence Jesus to death. Let's continue on. Ray, you want to pick up in verse 12 to 16?
4: From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jews kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judge's seat at a place known as a stone pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified.
0: So what's interesting here is in the book of John, they're saying here, we have no king but Caesar. That was their cry. But if you look back in John chapter 6, verse 15, the Jews wanted to make Christ king at that time. And then in John 12, 13, they hailed him as a king. But now they've rejected him. This is what you could call the third crisis in John's gospel. Ray, continue on in verse 17 to 22.
4: So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side, and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the people read this sign for the place where Jesus was crucified, was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Pilate says, What I have written,
0: I have written. Another ironic twist, you might say that Pilate had the last word, for he wrote the title on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. It was customary for a Roman prisoner to wear his accusation on a placard above his head on the cross. And Christ's crime was that he made himself king. And commentators have suggested that the three languages, it was written in three different languages, represented the three great areas of human life. Religion, the Hebrews, philosophy and culture, written in Greek, and law, written in Latin. This title also suggests the universal sin. These three great nations of the world participate in his in his death. Religion, philosophy, and law will not save lost sinners. So in this next section, in verses 28 to 37, we see glimpses of how horrible of a death Jesus would endure on the cross. Jesus speaks from the cross seven different times, and here we have two of the times that he, that he speaks. He says, I thirst, and then he says, Ted I it is finished. He dies before his legs need to be broken, but he finished the work that he came to do. So, Ray,
4: can you you finish this up in chapter 19, verses 37 to 42? 37 to 42. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was a Jewish day of preparation. And since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Consider
0: what's happening here. God had prepared Joseph and Nicodemus, two members of the Sanhedrin, to bury the body of Jesus. Now, this is the third time we hear of Nicodemus and in the book of John. And it appears that at last he's coming out boldly as a follower of Jesus. And we should be careful not to criticize Joseph for being a, quote, secret disciple, as as the text mentions. For we can see how God used him and Nicodemus to accomplish God's purposes. Had their faith been known openly, they would have been prevented by the council for caring for the body of Jesus. In fact, when Joseph and Nicodemus touched the dead body of Jesus, they defiled themselves for the Passover. But they didn't care for they had come to trust the Lamb of God himself. Let's pause here for some comments and questions, and then we'll dive in and talk about the resurrection. Joe.
1: You know, it's interesting. We take a look at Holy Week, and Jesus, it's only five days since his triumphal entry into the city, and now it's Friday morning. And we, we say, how can it be that this mob calls for his crucifixion and and if you notice we read in in um, chapter 19 that as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him they shouted crucify crucify so I'll remind all of us when I mean, you go back a few days and they're concerned when Jesus is performing miracles in this last week and he's teaching in the temple he said what are we going to do it's Caiaphas who says this in chapter 14 he said They asked, what are we accomplishing? Uh, Here is the man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. Then one of them, Caiaphas, the high priest, that year spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the nation perish. Caiaphas, from the beginning, led this mob. And he was determined to destroy
5: Jesus. Pat and Joe. It is good that we spend so much time in this gospel of John because it is really dense with meaning. And I just wanted to amplify a couple of points that you brought out. When Pilate has Jesus flogged, he brings him out and famously says, behold the man. And at that point, He is like the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He has been scourged. It is by his wounds that we are healed. And as you pointed out, he's silent before Pilate, Isaiah 53. The sheep is silent before the sharers. Eventually, the suffering servant is buried in a rich man's tomb. So you have basically Isaiah looking 700 years ahead is describing the crucifixion scene. Mm. The other point, going back to chapter 18, and you you commented on this, where Judas is standing with those who come to arrest Jesus. So he has, we can think of to stand as to set out a position. Judas is standing with the enemies of God. And as soon as Jesus says, I am, they all fall. So if you stand with the enemies of God, you will not stand long. Two
6: points. First, to go along with what Joe said, how pathetic is it that one man should die for us? It was very pathetic in that. The other thing I found interesting, a little parallelism. In the old Jewish record, in order, you had the two goats, the escape goat, and the scapegoat had to have the hands laid on to him, you know, so the sins of the, the people to be put upon that scapegoat. And then, of course, the other one was killed. In Jesus and Barabbas bar Jesus, we have the same thing. Jesus is slapped. So he has a form. His hands been put on by the priest. And then they release Jesus bar, bar done over, they release uh, Barabbas. And so it's kind of an interesting parallel that what was in the past. God did with Jesus as the scapegoat, that being
7: Barabbas. Jim, love the brashness of Peter. I guess I'll I'll chat about. You know, this is. I was impressed also that Peter takes on this whole cor- cohort by himself, right? But this is the brash Peter, because it doesn't last, right? This courage kind of goes away before you know it. He's hiding. And, you know, this brashness comes out where you're going to read it maybe in 21, where when Jesus meets him in Galilee and the disciples say, hey, there's Jesus on the shore. He throws himself into the water. You know, this brash, passionate guy is also hiding later, a little bit later from a slave girl. Right. And so to me, this is Peter's flesh. Right. Not courage. Courage would last Later on, when he's transformed, he walks to his own cross and, and insists on being crucified upside down. That's a transformed man filled with the spirit, right? But now you have this combination of brash and coward, and that's just human flesh, and that's our flesh, right? We we need the Holy Spirit. And just leave me more, one more comment about Pilate here and Jesus. Uh, you know, at the beginning... I often wondered how this would go because Jesus, Pilate, bring him out, bring Jesus out. I want to talk to him. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, "Whoa, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you about me? And if Pilate says, no, I want to know. Man, does that change the story? That's good. that totally changes the story because he will reveal himself to seekers. He, he would have begun to explain himself to Pilate, just like any honest seeker. But later, when he asked Jesus, where are you from? Jesus gives him no answer. Right. Because often he sits there and reveals himself in that manner. He says, I know where I've come from and where I'm going. And this is how he reveals himself to his disciples. But to Pilate, he gets no answer. Where are you from? He gets no answer because it's not a sincere question. He's not really seeking Jesus. Jesus reveals himself to those who are truly seeking
5: him. Mm. Great, great thoughts. Bob? Well, I I have a question that just continues to bother me, so I'll ask it. Why is it that the group of soldiers that came to get Jesus when he said, I am, why did they all fall to the ground? And then they got up and arrested him that is so inconsistent i can't figure out why that's in there
0: yeah well it's in there because it happened what i think is i think they thought maybe it was just some like crazy wind that blew them over they they couldn't connect they couldn't because they're blinded they didn't connect what was really happening so they they had to explain it was like that was like some crazy wind that just blew us over so you know what i mean It's a great question. It'll be a great question to ask when we get to heaven someday.
1: One of the interesting questions or the statements in this is when Pontius (laughs) makes the statement, Who is or what is the truth? which clearly tells us he does not know the truth. Mm. So, but I love reading the story of Pontius and Christ because what's amazing about it is scripture is clear we show our love to the Lord by our obedience. And Christ, there was never a moment he wasn't in control but we see him absolutely submitting to the will of God. Mm. So this is such an expression of such deep love. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. Amen. It seems so chaotic, but it's
0: all happening to fulfill all these prophecies. And it's just amazing. You can't, you know, statistically, you can't make that happen.
1: He he answers in a way only Christ would answer. Are you a king? You say that I am. Why did he ask him that question? He was the most powerful man. He asked him a second time, are you a king? Not of this world. He never denies the truth. Uh The truth is before him, but he's denying the truth.
2: Yeah, answer to why they they fell down. Jesus revealed his glory in revealing his name, I am. And it reveals the hardness of the human heart in rejecting God's glory, rejecting his love, that in spite of having his glory revealed, they still went ahead and arrested him.
0: Uh Good thought.
2: Go back for just a moment to the discussion about Peter. We know Peter goofed up. He professed to be so strong and, and sincere, he denied Jesus three times. But in Mark chapter 16, 7, when the women went to the tomb to anoint the body, the angel said to them, go tell his disciples and Peter. Uh-huh. that he's going into before you, he still loved him.
6: Yeah.
2: I mean, throughout, throughout New Testament, we see people who Jesus loved and failed, but he doesn't throw them out. Yeah, That's a good lesson for us. It's an
0: awesome lesson for us. We're going to continue talking about Peter. So let's dive in. We're going to look at chapter 20. I'm just going to summarize this. So Mary comes to the tomb while it was still dark. Now, Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary. So she loved him deeply, but in her confusion and disappointment, she jumps to the conclusions that somebody stole Christ's body. So she ran and told Peter and John, who in turn visit the tomb. And it's funny that John says that he outran Peter, which might be because he was younger. But John and Peter kind of, you know, there's this thing going on between them, which I think is kind of interesting. They talked about who's the greatest, and we're going to get to that in a second. But what did the men see in the tomb? They saw burial wrappings, but no body. The one for Jesus's head was carefully folded, lying by itself. Now, do you think that looks like a scene of a grave robbery, the way it was laid out? Absolutely not. Who could volunteer to read this next section?
6: But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had been laid, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Just some interesting things
0: about it. I really do want to get to Peter. So we're going to kind of fly over this part, but look at verse 10 at verse 10 ends. It says the disciples went back to their homes, but I love the beginning of verse 11, but Mary, but Mary didn't, but uh, Mary didn't Mary stayed. And because she stayed, she met the risen Christ. Now, first she saw these two angels in the tomb that, that couldn't even comfort her. And and heck, the angels didn't even have to say, do not be afraid, fear not. You know how when angels show up in the Bible, they're always like, fear not, don't be afraid. I mean, Mary was so distraught, they didn't even have to say that to her. The two angels, by the way, some people will say, remind us of the mercy seat, which is described in Exodus 25, verses 17 to 19, that there's angels in in the mercy seat. Well, she turns away from the angels and talks to this guy that she thinks is a gardener. But then when he says her name, when he says her name, she figure, she understands it's Jesus. That's when she comes to believe in him for the first time. And what's interesting here is that the first thing Jesus does is send her out on a mission. <laughs> he sends her away. She wants to hold on to him as long as she can. But he says, you got to let me go. And in fact, I have an assignment for you. Imagine how difficult it would have been for Mary to leave Jesus. Like, I mean, she did not want him out of her sight. But Jesus said, no, you got to go. You got to go tell, tell the others. Yes.
1: Quick question from Zoomland. It is mentioned a couple of times that he appeared to people that knew him, but they did not recognize him. How can that be? Is there an explanation?
0: There's lots of theories on why they couldn't recognize him. Some people say that because he's had all the scars, that he still looked like the Jesus on the cross. So he wasn't really appealing. I I don't know if that's true, but the resurrected body, our resurrected bodies are going to be different than, than our normal bodies. So maybe he looked like a 25 year old, you know, maybe he looked younger. We don't know. We don't know. Jim, you want to say something
7: real quick? Just uh, h- how, how it works in the Christian life. Jesus reveals himself to us through relationship. Right? So he calls Mary. When she, he, he utters her name, that's revealing himself to her soul, not necessarily to human sight. He, that's how he, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And he utters her name in relationship, and she recognizes him. Right, that's how he's to be beheld, not mm-hmm. uh, necessarily in human eyes. That's a good thought. Okay,
0: so I'm just going to summarize this next section. Jesus goes and it, to be with his disciples. The doors are locked because they're still kind of living in fear. But Jesus comes into the room while the doors are locked, and I love. So apparently, our resurrected bodies can walk through walls. Maybe it's kind of like C.S. Lewis wrote in his book The Great Divorce. Anybody read that book The Great Divorce where our resurrected bodies are more solid. In fact, they're so solid that walls seem like vapors. You can walk right through them. I don't know. He walked through the walls and then he comes to Thomas and Thomas is the one and he he deals graciously with Thomas. The end of ch- chapter 20. Ends with this beautiful statement. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And by believing you may have life in his name. It's like the perfect ending to his gospel. Why didn't he just end it right there? Maybe, maybe he did, but it seems like the Holy spirit inspired him to write one more chapter. And I think the reason he inspired him had to do with Peter. He had to tell the story of Peter because the last time we hear Peter, he denied him three times. What happens to Peter? So I almost picture John writes this and he goes to bed that night at peace thinking, ah, perfect ending to my, my book on Jesus. But then the Holy spirit starts reminding him. Oh no, you didn't even tell that what happens with Peter because you can't really understand the book of Acts. You know, There's like, what, what happened to this guy? So, so anyway, chapter 21. So the, the chapter begins with seven disciples. We like the number seven. There were seven disciples and they're all hanging out in Galilee. And Peter says, he decides he's going to go back to his old profession. I'm going to go fishing. And because he's a good leader, the other guys say, I'm going with you. So they all go fishing. Jesus shows up, they don't catch anything, it's a horrible night of fishing, they don't recognize Jesus right away, but just like in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, Jesus gives them fishing advice, and the results are a miraculous catch of fish, in fact, 153 fish. There are several miracles to note here, besides the catch of fish. Did you notice in Peter's given miraculous strength to draw up the net? The seven men were not able to pull those fish in, but, but somehow Peter, if you look at verses six and 11, he was able to pull in the nets. The fact that the net didn't break is amazing. The fire on the coals and the cooked breakfast were supplied miraculously. Jesus already had breakfast going for the disciples. And like Jim Love said, it was all about Relationship. Jesus was trying to get back in relationship. So this entire scene was meant to awaken Peter's conscience and open his eyes. The catch of fish reminded him of his past decision to forsake all and follow Christ. The fire and the coals would take him back to his denial. Because remember his denials? He was was standing around a fire with coals on it. And the location, the Sea of Galilee, reminded him of so many past past experiences with Jesus, feeding 5,000 people, walking on the water, catching the fish with the coin in it, stealing the storm, all these experiences. But since he denied Jesus publicly, he would need to be restored publicly. Chapter 21, verses 15 to 19. Maybe just Big Dan, since he's right there.
2: When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me.
0: So the issue here is Peter's love for Christ. If a man really loves Christ, his life will be devoted and dedicated. Note that Jesus gives Peter a new commission. He's not only to be a fisher of men, but he's to be a shepherd besides being a fisher of men. A shepherd who would shepherd the lambs and and feed the sheep, the word of God. But when Jesus said, do you love me more than these? What are the these? Was he pointing to the fish and his fishing equipment or was he pointing to the other disciples? That's a big uh, thing to think about. Was it, what was Jesus referring to when he said, do you love me more than these? I think there's a good case for both because both can apply to us today. I mean, you can ask yourself, do you love Jesus more than you love your career? I hope you do. But you can also ask, do you love Jesus more than comparing yourself with other people? You can make a solid case for, bo- for both of these, what, what the these is. But let's, let's look at what Peter said before he denied Jesus. This is from Matthew chapter 26, verses 33 to 35. Peter said, though everyone else will fall away because of you, I will never fall away. This is what Peter said, how confident he was at his dedication to Jesus. And then Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And then what does Peter say to that? He says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Commentators also make this interesting observation, because there's four different words for love in Greek. Gapé is kind of like the sacrificial, most committed love. Phileo is like a brotherly love. And in these verses, Jesus basically says, Do you love me with a sacrificial, fully committed love? And Peter says, Jesus, you know I love you as a brother. And so he asks him again. And he says, You know I love you as a brother. But then Jesus changes and says, Do you love me as a brother? And he says, Yes, I love you as a brother. Now, those two different Greek words may or may not mean something, but we got to remember this. When this conversation took place, it wasn't taking place in Greek. It was spoken in Aramaic. So that's why we shouldn't make too much of the, the differences here. But what I think is happening with Peter is, remember how confident Peter was? I will never deny you. I think what Peter got himself to a place is, you know what, Jesus, you know me better than I know myself. And I think that's a healthy place for us to be as disciples to say, you know what? You know what, God, you know, my heart way better than I know myself. It's like when somebody, a man might say, I will never commit adultery. I will never hurt somebody. I will, you know, be careful when you say those kind of things, right? Because you're a man, you're a sinner. What I love about where Peter got himself to is he got himself to a point where he wasn't confident in himself but he found his confidence in Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, what do you need to do? You need to follow me. And here's an interesting thing in this, this next section, what does Peter do immediately after this? It says he turned around and he saw John. And then he said, well, what about him? (laughs) And isn't that what, I mean, that's what you see Jesus doing all throughout the gospels. Who's the greatest, who's going to be the greatest John and John and Peter had this like brotherly you know competition going on who's going to be the greatest and so immediately you know you think it's like a beautiful ending again you know peter's restored but then the first thing he does is he said well what about him which is like that's not what you're supposed to do peter you don't you don't compare yourself to other people he says who cares what happens to him you follow me so i want to end this morning with the story, I don't know if you've heard, you know, the, you know, the song I've decided to follow Jesus. Have you ever heard the story behind that song? About 150 years ago, there was a great revival in Wales. As a result of this, many missionaries came to the Northeast India to spread the gospel. The region was known as Assam and was comprised of hundreds of tribes who were primitive and aggressive headhunters. Into these hostile, aggressive communities came a group of missionaries from the American Baptist missions, spreading the message of love, peace, and hope in Jesus Christ. Naturally, they were not welcomed. One missionary succeeded in converting a man, his wife, and two children. The man's faith proved to be contagious, and many villagers began to accept Christianity. The chief of that village got very angry. And he summoned all the villagers together. And then he called the family who had first converted to renounce their faith in public or face execution. Moved by the Holy Spirit, the man said, I have decided to follow Jesus. Enraged at, at his refusal of the man, the chief ordered his archers to arrow down the two children As both of the boys lay there twitching on the floor, the chief asked, will you deny your faith? You've lost both your children and you will lose your wife too. But you know what the man replied? Though no one joins me, still I will follow. The chief priest was beside himself with fury and ordered his wife to be arrowed down. In a moment, she joined her two children in death. Now he asks, the last time, I will give you one more opportunity to deny your faith and live. In the face of death, the man said one of the most memorable lines, the cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back. And he was shot dead, just like the rest of his family. In their deaths, a miracle took place because the chief who had ordered the deaths, And the killings was moved by the faith of the man. And he wondered, why should this man, his wife and two children, die for a man who lived in a faraway land in another country, another continent some 2,000 years ago? There must be some remarkable power behind this family's faith, and I want to taste that faith. So in a spontaneous confession of faith, he declared, I too belong to Jesus Christ. And when the crowd heard it, this from the mouth of their chief, the whole village accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. Can you believe that all because of one man, all because one man followed Jesus, men, your life matters to God. You following Jesus matters to God. God wants you to bear lasting fruit with your life. Let's heed the words of Peter. You follow me. That's what it's all about, us following Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for this book of John. Thank you for, man, just so much truth in here. Help us, Lord, to be like Peter, to to follow you. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. And even when we fail you, Lord, you're, you're right there to take us back. But I pray for each man in this room and any man listening through Zoom that you help us to be the men that you've called us to be men who follow you and who bear fruit in Jesus name. We pray. Amen. Amen.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode of the gospel addict podcast. Feel free to contact us via email at gospel addict at gmail.com.
0: Stay tuned for our next episode. And remember on your worst days, you're never beyond the reach of God's grace. And on your best days, you're never beyond the need of God's grace.
1: See you next time.